0: place a deep love and appreciation for the grace of God, passages like the one we're about to dive into can seem like a threat. After all, grace and heaviness don't seem to be uh, reconcilable friends at first glance. But I would submit to all of us that passages like the one that we're about to take a look at are a means of that very grace that we deeply love and appreciate so much. Um, let Let me say it this way. I think we think of the Bible as truth. That's an easy one for us to wrap our minds around. But think about this. The Bible tells us that God is love. And the Bible also tells us that all of Scripture is breathed out by God. If you connect those dots, that means that all of Scripture, if love could breathe out words and say something, your Bible is what love would say. And that's the entirety of the Bible, including the passage that we're going to dive into this morning. And so um, even the warning passages in the book of Hebrews are God's love to you. They're God's grace to you. They're God's kindness to you. Um, If you you take a look at uh, verse 7 as we dive into this morning's passage, and we've got a good bit of ground to cover, um, fascinating passage of Scripture. The author of Hebrews says this, well, once again, the author of Hebrews, he's done it before. He's doing it again. He's, he's taking us to the shadows of the Old Testament. Therefore, verse 7, having looked at Jesus compared to Moses last week, we now get to look at Jesus' followers compared to Moses' followers. These verses give us a picture of the Exodus, uh, the leading of, of the Israelites out of Egyptian enslavement on a journey to the Promised Land. If you recall the story In the Old Testament, the Egyptians had been oppressing the Israelites for quite some time. Um, In his providence, God raised up Moses to command Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let God's people go. Um, Moses and his brother Aaron ended up in a battle of wills with Pharaoh. Pharaoh's response, you want me to allow the Israelites to stop making bricks that are being used to build monuments to my glory so that I can then send them out into the desert to make much of another deity? Not going to happen. So God... In order to demonstrate his power, which he's known to do from time to time, brought a series of plagues upon Egypt. The plagues went from bad to worse, culminating in the tenth and final plague, the death of the firstborn. God said to Moses, I'm going to bring about redemption and here's how I'm going to do it. I want you, my people, to take a lamb, and not just any lamb, a lamb without blemish, and I want you to kill that lamb without blemish and smear its blood on your front door. That lamb is going to act as your substitute. Judgment is coming upon the land. No one is exempt. It's either the blood of the lamb or the blood of your firstborn son. And we're told that the Israelites did as as God commanded. And that night, God struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, those whose front door was not covered by the blood of the unblemished lamb. As the story goes on to tell, the Israelites were spared and went on to institute the annual celebration known as Passover. Um, The New Testament writers tell us that Jesus is the true fulfillment of Passover. Um, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Peter says it this way, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, that as God saw the the blood of the lamb on the door of the Israelite homes and passed over them. So God sees the blood of the lamb, Jesus spilled out for us and passes over us. That Jesus died our death. He, he bore our sin. He bore our penalty. He bore our punishment. He bled and died so that like Israel, you and I could go free. Now, I, I share the story of passover with you because it sets the stage for the very exodus story that the author of hebrews is referring back to the night of the first passover was the night that god established israel's freedom from enslavement to egypt if ever there were high expectations that that things were going to turn out well for the israelites that most certainly would have been true in light of the action god had taken to set them free like you would think that right Everything was working for their good. Over a million Israelites walking away from over 400 years of bondage, great wealth in hand from having plundered the Egyptians on their way out the door. In God's providence, he had established a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to lead them to the promised land. Wouldn't that be nice if we left this place and we knew God's will because he just dangled a cloud over our heads and told us where to go? That would be amazing, right? Everybody would be a part of this church if that was what we were known for. What could possibly go wrong for these guys? The Bible tells us that of the million plus people who walked out of Egypt that night, only two over the age of 20 actually entered the promised land. The rest tragically died in the desert. And that's the image running through the mind of the author of Hebrews as he considers the church to whom he's writing. Verses 7 through 11 actually come from Psalm 95, which is a warning in and of itself. It's a pointing back to what happened to the wilderness generation for hardening their hearts. And and we get a helpful indication in these verses of what that means. What does it mean to harden one's heart? The psalmist points back to the Israelites' failure to trust God in their pilgrimage. In other words, at its root, it's a belief issue that we're talking about here. Um, In fact, the author of Hebrews is going to make that crystal clear in verses 12 and 19 as he talks about this issue of unbelief. That once the Israelites, you could say, got past the honeymoon phase of being freed from Egypt, they began to question God as trials came. Is the Lord among us? Is he not? Their unbelief, their failure to trust God led to grumbling. It led to irreverence. It ultimately led to disobedience. And these are the concerns of the author of Hebrews for those to whom he's writing. He fears that, that they may be tempted to respond like the first wilderness generation of Israel hardening their hearts in unbelief rather than trusting the Lord with softened hearts of faith coming back to that exodus imagery if Jesus is the true Passover lamb then the church is the new wilderness generation on pilgrimage that's you and me that you and I, along with those to whom this letter was written so long ago, are part of a new exodus established by Jesus. In fact, you see those words in Luke chapter 9, uh, verses 30 and 31. Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, his inner circle. And we're told this, Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, Jesus's departure. That word departure is the Greek word exodus. And it says, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That Jesus was going to establish a new exodus as he entered into Jerusalem to die. Not only is the G- uh, Jesus the true Passover lamb, he establishes a greater exodus by his blood, the Bible teaches. That as the Israelites had hoped for the rest offered to them in the land of Canaan, so we hope for the eternal rest offered to us in the new heaven and earth. But there's a persevering in faith to the end that's a part of obtaining the prize. And it's not that persevering is what saves us, Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. But it is that the fruit of persevering authenticates the root of that very faith in our lives. I've said this before in this series, and I'm sure I'll say it multiple times before we finish up, that to say I prayed a prayer back in the day so I'm good to go, according to the language of Hebrews chapter 3, would be like Old Testament Israel saying, God passed over my home in Egypt back in the day, so I'm good to go. I'm just going to coast. Kent Hughes says it this way in in his commentary. He says, the problem today is that so many people, when asked about faith, point to their quote-unquote exodus when they began with Christ. They can wax eloquent about their experience. How dare anyone question that? They went forward, they left Egypt, they were baptized and identified with God's people, they visibly drank from the same rock, Christ, they used the same redemptive vocabulary with the same pious inflections, but troubles came and they turned away. Their quote-unquote exodus is a convenient memory, but to trust God now, that is a problem for their faith is dead. The author of Hebrews is pleading with those who make up this little battle-inflicted church to whom he's writing to measure, to test their spiritual pulses in light of present tense difficulties, challenges, and dangers in life. I don't know about you, but this is a sobering word for me, personally. I find myself singing God is great, God is good all the time as long as things are going according to my plan. But the moment that his plan doesn't align with my plan there's a temptation to abandon trust in him for me. You can ask my wife. She's in the kid's wing. Go find her after the service. Ask her these questions. Are there times that Jamie could easily win a grumbling contest with a wilderness-wandering Israelite? The answer is yes and amen. Are there times that Jamie would prefer to go back to Egypt, that that sounds better to him than moving forward and progressing toward Canaan? Yeah, there are times. It's one of the reasons I'm so thankful for this book of the Bible because it, it, it helps me to... To measure my spiritual pulse, and in doing so, actually serves as God's kindness, as a helpmate in in causing me to continue to persevere in the faith. He goes on to say in verse 12, we'll read through verse 19, says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, and again he quotes Psalm 95. Today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For, those, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter, here it is, because of unbelief. That in spite of God's provision and protection in leading the Israelites out of Egypt, that first wilderness generation hardened their hearts in rebellion toward the Lord. That Despite having seen the miracles of the parting of the Red Sea and manna falling from the skies, that first wilderness generation hardened their hearts in rebellion toward the Lord. Looking at verse 19, again, they were unable to enter the promised land because of unbelief. Under every sin is the sin of unbelief. A failure to believe that God is who he says he is. A failure to believe that he really is wise in all circumstances. A failure to believe that he really is good when good things don't seem to be happening in our lives. A failure to believe that he really does love us. A failure to believe that he really is seated on the throne as the king in full control of his universe. A failure to believe that Jesus' death is sufficient to pay for our sins and on and on and on we could go. The Christian life is a life of fighting to believe. We talk about it all the time around here. That's why gospel fluency is so indispensable. If all the promises find their yes in Jesus Christ, then we must become a more gospel-fluent people in order to fight this fight to believe. The fight to believe the gospel is what keeps our very hearts softened. And notice um, verse 13 That this fight is not one to be embraced in isolation. It says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We've we've been redeemed into a family. The church is a gift. Surrounding ourselves with brothers and sisters in Christ helps to keep our hearts softened. F.F. Bruce says it this way in his commentary. He says, the exhortation to mutual encouragement was wise on the part of the author of Hebrews. In isolation from fellow believers, each individual among them was more liable to succumb to the subtle temptations which pressed in from so many sides. But if they came together regularly for mutual encouragement, the devotion of all would be kept warm and their common hope would be in less danger of flickering and dying. The church is, is about so much more than participating in a service for an hour and a half every week and calling it a day. We, we get the privilege of reminding one another that each day, not just Sunday, every day is a new day. We call it today. Yesterday is done with. Today is the day to fix our eyes. On Jesus. Again, going back to that example that I've given before about my daughter on the beach being enamored with with the moon on night one and then coming back around and being enamored with with the moon on night two and then doing the same thing on night three. And and it was just as if she was saying to me, Daddy, Wednesday's over. It's Thursday now. It's time to behold and adore the moon all over again. That's the Christian life. And we get to spur one another on toward that beholding, toward that seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. And so perhaps the action item for some of us this morning comes out of verse 13. Maybe it is to move toward others in this church family for the sake of warring against unbelief, for the sake of keeping our hearts softened toward God. If you're new and you haven't seen this before, this is, uh, this is a layout of our strategy as a church. It's, it's very under-programmed, and, and that's on purpose. Um, we really go after three things uh, as a church, relationally speaking, um, we come into this place and we gather every Sunday, and and you see what what happens in this place just by being a part of it. You're here, so you know experientially, and and then we disperse into smaller bands of community throughout uh, the city and the surrounding areas. We call them community groups where we we dialogue about the implications of the gospel in our lives in light of where we are in a, in a very particular passage of scripture as a church, we can't do that in this place. And so we we need to get smaller so we can have those dialogues to to war with one another, to equip one another, to fight this good fight of faith to believe, to trust um, everything that God is for us and, and is for us in Jesus Christ. And then we get even smaller into what we're calling gospel alliances, where we realize that we can't accomplish everything that we want to accomplish in either of those first two environments. We must become more form-fitted, more intentional, to to war alongside one another in the trenches, to to continue to see and savor Jesus Christ. And and so we program those first two, and and we we encourage people toward the third, using the first two as a bridge relationally to get there. Um, And so... um, Maybe this morning for you, you you go okay. A step for me would be to to connect with one of these things you call a community group, or or I'm in one of those. But but maybe there's a more purposeful, intentional uh, way that I can get after the, this fighting to believe the gospel with someone else in this church in a very unique, form fitted way. And I would encourage you to, um, to to process through, to pray about that, and see what that might look like. And it's not just for for us, but for others. God uses us in the lives of other people. The flip side would be that we have a responsibility uh, of professing uh, to to those uh, who profess to love and follow Jesus, but appear to be drifting to speak the gospel into their lives. Those professing Christ followers who, who appear to be falling away from the Lord, to use the language of the author of Hebrews. Those professing Christ followers who appear to have become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Those professing Christ followers who appear to have lost their confidence in Jesus. And I'm not, we've talked about this before. I'm not talking about running around with whistles in our mouths, calling fouls on one another constantly. That is not the picture of the local church. The the picture of the church is not, here you go, here's your whistle, blow it often, please. Um, But there is a real sense in which entering into the lives of those who appear to be drifting is a means of God's grace. Again, the church is a gift surrounding ourselves with brothers and sisters in Christ who are fixing their eyes on Jesus helps to keep our hearts softened. And so the author of Hebrews goes on to say in verse 1 of chapter 4, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as it came to them. But the, messenger, uh, the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. The Israelites had good news preached to them. God's rescue from Egypt, his covenant established with them, the hope of the promised land. But they didn't trust God by faith, according to verse 2. You and I have had good news preached to us. God's rescue from Satan, sin, and death, the greater Egypt, the new covenant established in Jesus' blood, the hope of eternal rest in his presence, a more glorious Canaan. The question for us is the same question with which Israel was faced. In hearing the good news, will we trust God by faith? F.F. F. Bruce says this in his commentary. He says, the practical implication of these verses is clear. It is not the hearing of the gospel by itself that brings final salvation, but its appropriation by faith. And if that faith is a genuine faith, he says, it will be a persistent faith. Do we trust him by faith? Do we trust him with our lives in both the good and the bad? Today is a new day. Today is the day to declare our trust in the Lord. Today is the day to declare our hope in Jesus. Today is the day to declare our confidence in the gospel. We have found our hope. We sing it all the time. We have found our peace. We have found our rest. And his name is Jesus. The author of Hebrews continues to make his point by, and this is where it gets a little technical, he, he actually looks backward and forward in human history at the same time. He, he goes back to the creation story, the very first chapter of human history, and he looks forward to the recreation story, the final chapter, when Jesus returns to establish his eternal rest for us. He says this in verse 3. He says, For we who have believed enter that rest as he has said, And again, he quotes Psalm 95. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he is somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. I love that uh, scripture reference. If you don't know where it is, just say somewhere in the Bible it's spoken of um, in this way. And then he quotes Genesis 2. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Paraphrase, simply put, God's rest is a rest that was established in the very beginning in creation. And it's a rest that the wilderness generation of Israel was invited into, yet they failed to embrace it by faith. And now he's going to track forward from that first wilderness generation in history toward David. And then toward the the recipients of the letter of of this book of the Bible. And then to us, ultimately today, he says this in verse 6. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. That's the wilderness-wandering generation of Israel. Again, verse 7, He appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in Psalm 95, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's not just the wilderness generation who was invited into God's rest. It's a rest that was available to people in David's day. God's rest was available to David's generation by faith. And it's available, it was available to the original recipients of this letter to the Hebrews, which is why he, he preaches this sermon using Psalm 95 here in Hebrews chapter three. And it's incredibly good news for us that, that God's rest is still available to us today As long as it's called today, you and I can fix our eyes on Jesus with the hope of present and future rest. Today is a new day. See and savor him today. Abide in him today. Again, going back to that word picture of my daughter on the beach. Behold, look at the moon, daddy. Look at Jesus. Isn't he glorious today? And as we do, he brings rest to our hearts. Both a future rest and going back to verse three, a present rest. In other words, there's most certainly a rest that's coming uh, for us in the eternal presence of God in the new heaven and earth. But there's also a present rest that's offered to us in pr- proportion to our trust in him. That Jesus offers us greater peace and freedom than anything this world can offer. Things like that we're going to pack in community groups this week. So that we can point one another to Jesus and find our ultimate rest and freedom and hope in him yet again. Verse 8, he goes on to say, Carrying on his argument, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Here's where uh, the author of Hebrews helps to bring some clarity as to what it means to experience God's rest. Because that, I mean, that terminology can be just vague enough that you don't know what to do with it, right? The experience of God's rest, according to the author of Hebrews, was not just about obtaining the proper real estate. It wasn't as though Israel just needed to cross the property line into Canaan and all would be well. That's not it. We know that because the story of Israel after being led into Canaan under the leadership of Joshua, verse 8, is a story of rebellion, strife, and ultimately exile from the land altogether into Babylon. Joshua could not give the people true rest. Interestingly, uh, and, and this is a, a very technical, um, going back to the original language thing, but, but the name Joshua translated in Greek is the name Jesus. So where we get the name Jesus. Verse 8, for, for the recipients of this letter to the Hebrews, would have brought to mind two Jesuses. The Jesus of the Old Testament, Joshua, who is unable to bring about true rest, and the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who provides true and ultimate rest for his people. That Jesus is the greater Joshua. We talked about how Jesus is greater than angels. Jesus is greater than fallen man. Jesus is greater than Moses. Now we see Jesus is greater than Joshua. We rest from our works by trusting in Jesus's works on our behalf. Verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience like we saw with the first-generation wilderness wanderers. It's interesting. According to, to these first few chapters of the book of Hebrews, the Christian life is a striving to rest, a striving to believe the Lord, a striving to trust the Lord, a striving to behold the Lord. A striving to be satisfied in the Lord, come what may. A striving to keep our hearts softened. Which brings us to verse 12. How How do we do that? Yes, community. But community under the banner of God's word, according to verse 12. It says this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That God's word is alive, it's living, it's active, it's effectual in that it has the power to accomplish what it promises to accomplish. It's one of the reasons we're so committed to to remaining tethered to the scriptures as a church. God's word has the power to effect change in us. God's word is also piercing, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. It cuts to the deepest recesses of our being. There's nothing that God's word can't cut through to bring about conviction and healing. As we come face to face with God's word, he loves to use it as a scalpel for our good, you might say. God's word is also discerning discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. As it cuts to the deepest recesses of our being, it brings our innermost motives to light. Doesn't that sound fun? It's like a mirror in that it reveals who we really are. But here's the beauty of that. It's God's grace. That as we grow in an awareness of God's holiness and our sinfulness, the cross looms larger in our lives. We talk about it all the time around here. We find ourselves increasingly grateful for and in awe of the person and finished work of Jesus as we stare into that mirror. God's word exposes us. It exposes the folly of drifting. It it awakens slumbering hearts to the beauty of Jesus Christ. It shows us our own weaknesses so that we can rejoice in the strength of the Savior. It's God's word that tells us who Jesus is and who we are in him. It's God's word that keeps us rooted in belief, rooted in trust, so that we don't drift. It's God's word that keeps our hearts softened in faith. And because God's word is the very heartbeat of God himself, it comes as no surprise that we would encounter these words in verse 13. He says, And no creature is hidden from his sight. He connects God's word now to God himself. No creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That we stand exposed by the word of God and before the God of the word. And tweet that. There's nothing to hide in. There's nothing to hide behind. We are naked and exposed before the Lord. A facade of goodness will not work. The fig leaves of our own successes in life will not work. We need grace, which is what Luther was so adamant about 500 years ago. And we don't just need grace to become followers of Jesus. We need grace every day as followers of Jesus. That's why it's it's all the more devastating that some to whom the author of Hebrews was writing this, this work, this letter to, we're thinking of abandoning the grace offered in Jesus to return to the priesthood and sacrificial system. Are you kidding me? What about us? I think it would be appropriate to, to wrestle with a few questions in light of a passage like this. To ask, what's preventing me from resting in the finished work of Jesus? today as long as it's called today presently what's preventing me from resting in the finished work of Jesus and what areas am I still trying to prove myself and what areas do I find it difficult to trust him those are just a few questions to to wrestle with in light of a passage like this, to confess those things then to the Lord as we move into a time of communion. That's a great space to do that, to have a moment of self-examination, to confess these things to the Lord and to receive his grace and rest this morning. The gospel offers us grace and rest both now and in the age to come. Al Mohler says this, he says, only one thing can satisfy the restlessness of the human soul and that is the rest of God. And the only way we can access God's rest is by faith in Jesus Christ, the one who secures God's rest for believers through his death and resurrection. If we reject the promises of the gospel, then we will die in the wilderness. But if we trust in his promises and in the God who makes them, we will enter God's rest. This is a message, I love this, this is a message stubborn sinners need to hear over and over again which is why this is not the last of the warning passages in the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews is gonna continue to put the superior son of God on display and he's gonna cause us to continue to stare in that mirror and and have those moments of self-diagnosis so that we run yet again to our fount, Jesus Christ. He is our rest. May we run to him. May we cling to him. May we see and savor him.